Holy God, we are grateful that you have given us your word, you have given us your spirit, so we might encounter you through your word and through your spirit. Lord, I pray you would open our eyes to see what you would have us know. I pray you would challenge us in ways that transform our thinking uh, toward your truth. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, um, what's, what's, the, what's our problem with the Bible? Hmm. And I would say as a culture, we, we have a problem with it. We actually live in the most biblically illiterate time in the history of our nation. And I think it would be fair to say people inside the church and out don't trust the Bible. Uh, we say things like, there are many good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't take every word of it literally, of course. And what we mean by that is that the Bible can be helpful, kind of like a Dr. Shaman guru book, but it really shouldn't have much uh, authority in our lives, and thus we choose not to read it. But I would argue, Maybe we don't fully know what it is. So this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at what the Bible is and what it isn't. We are not going to be exhaustive in this because there's no amount of time that would be exhaustive. It's God's truth and God's truth is bigger than us. But let's start with this, what the Bible isn't. The Bible is not merely a collection of timeless truths. If you're taking notes, this is on the back of your worship folder. The Bible is not merely a collection of timeless timeless truths. If the scriptures are inspired by God, and I say I believe they are, the text of the scriptures actually indicate God did not simply want to give us abstract truths, completely unrelated to space and time. While the Bible gives us timeless truth, God is love, for example, It does so in the context of a story of a people in geographical locations in a particular time. So while there is timeless truth in the scriptures, it is not just timeless truth for your edification. It's deeper than that. And while I have nothing against daily devotional books, and please hear me, someone said, well, you disrespected daily devotional books. I'm not saying that at all, all right? I think daily devotional books are fine, but God did not give us just a daily devotional book. While I have nothing against textbooks, God did not give us a textbook either. He gave us something actually quite rif- different. He gave us a library of 66 books all different types of literature containing law and prose and poetry, apocalyptic literature, theological literature. As we read it, we have to let it be what it is, which is more than just a collection of timeless truths that can sit on the shelf of your local bookstore with all kinds of other timeless truths. It's deeper than that. Secondly, I'll say the Bible is not merely a witness to important events. That is a role the scriptures play, I believe so, but limiting the Bible to a witness to important events uh, boxes the text in a way that the text won't allow. For example, is the Bible just a piece of history? 
Well, no. <laughs> if, if the Bible is just a piece of history, why is the Song of Solomon in the Scriptures, and why is that particular book somehow authoritative? The Psalms, the Song of Solomon, um, are, are not historical books, but they actually have authority. If the Bible is merely a witness to some important historical books, then uh, events, then the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs, should have no authority in our lives. But we say the poetry of the wisdom literature in the scriptures is actually somehow authoritative for us. And so the Bible is not merely a witness to important events. Thirdly, the Bible is not merely a survival manual. Maybe you've heard me say this before, but if we are honest with what is written, we have to admit it is more lessons on how to die an early death. <laughs> in fact, I will go so far as to say, just so you know, there is not a whole lot in the scriptures that say, you know, you need to survive at any cost. I mean, think about it. Jesus and most of the 12 disciples all died at the hands of their enemies. Uh, Paul was imprisoned, tortured, shipwrecked. Stephen was stoned to death. James was beheaded. If the scriptures were meant to be a survival manual, well, it kind of does a very bad job because a lot of the heroes in the scriptures die pretty young. So the Bible cannot merely be a survival manual. Trust me, I believe it's helpful as we live this life. I believe it is the word of God for this life. But if it's just a survival manual, what do we say to James just before he's beheaded? Okay, so then what is it? I don't think we're getting exhausted, like I said, but let's start with this. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. And here I want to build upon what I said last week. In Ephesians 6, the writer lists a number of what we call the, the, the armor of God, you know, what, what the believer in Christ needs to have in order to move through a world where the slings and arrows of the enemy are constantly coming at us. And he writes in verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, uh, whose word is this? FYI, it's not Brad's word. And it's not your word, and it's not Faith Covenant's word. It is the sword of the Spirit. It's God's sword. It's not my sword, and it's not yours. yours. So Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. How in the world can simple words divide the soul, and judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Well, it can only do that if it's the very word of God, not just Brad's word or your words. These words only have authority if they come from God. And just so you know, the authority belongs to the author, not to the interpreter. Have you thought about that? The authority belongs to the author's intent, not to the interpreter. There's this great image in the book of Revelation of Jesus, the Word of God, and a sword that I, I, I would like us to look at just for a second. You'll see it on the screen here. Uh, look at the imagery here. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the writer. So this is a fascinating image. And, and uh, I, before we go to the next verse, I just want you to imagine it. White horse, Jesus on the horse. If you, read, if you read it in context, it's clearly Jesus. Jesus is on the horse, and coming out of Jesus' mouth is a sword. Not something you see every day, right? <laughs> Not something we imagine every day. And the rest of the text says, in uh, chapter 19, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. Now, I have heard Christians over and over Again, talk about how Jesus is going to return and he's going to violently overthrow evil by chopping people down with the sword. Gang, uh, Jesus, yes, in this imagery, is killing with a sword, but the fact that the sword is coming out of his mouth, does that tell us anything? In the scriptures, the sword is often the very word of God. So how is God, how is Jesus doing battle in the end times? He's doing it with his word. The incarnate word is using the word to do battle with the enemy. Who is the enemy? The enemy is the father of lies. How do you defeat lies? You defeat lies with truth. Have you ever given a thought to the fact that maybe the best way, the best good we can do in the world is to actually teach people the word that is the truth of God. So uh, the Bible actually uh, has been used to justify horrible things, though. That's what sometimes people will say. Okay, well, uh, this is is the word of God. Well, people use the word of God in horrible ways all the time. Well, I would say, yes, that's true. But you can use a sword for good or evil, can't you? Depending upon who uses it. The sword is not my sword, the sword is the Spirit of God. The sword is not your sword, the sword belongs to the Spirit of God. So the sword is to be used, the very truth of God is to be, is to be used in accordance with the leading of the Spirit. It's not used for my purposes or your purposes, it's used for God's purposes. Continuing forward, the Bible is God-breathed, meaning Scripture's very source is God himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. Let's repeat that. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Right. All scripture, the scriptures say, is God-breathed. But wait, we might say, the Bible was written by human hands. How can it be God-breathed? Breathes. Well, we use this illustration in Alpha quite a bit, and I think it's helpful. Uh, Sir Christopher Wren was who? Well, he was the greatest English architect of his time, built St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He started at the age of 44, and for 35 years, the cathedral was built under one architect. It was completed when Christopher Wren was 79 years of age. So Sir Christopher Wren is responsible for St. Paul's Cathedral, but Sir Christopher Wren didn't lay one stone of St. Paul's Cathedral. Other people, stonemasons, put the stones in place. So many different builders were involved, but there was one mind, one architect, one inspiration behind that 
which is St. Paul's Cathedral. And so it is with the Bible. There are many different writers, but there's one architect, one inspiration behind it all. We would say God himself. The Bible is God-breathed because the purpose of the Word of God, uh, the purpose of the Word of God is to serve the purposes of God. And what are God's purposes? I like the way scholar N.T. Wright puts it. He says, God's authority vested in Scripture is designed as all God's authority is designed to liberate human beings to judge and condemn evil and sin in the world in order to set people free to be fully human. That's what God is in the business of doing. And I would say what it means to be fully human is uh, found in becoming conformed to the very likeness of Christ. God breathed the words of Scripture as an instrument of liberating us so we can become all that He intended us to be. But of course, He can't help us understand who we are until we understand who God is. Thus, I would say the Bible is God's story. We come to it and we ask, oh Lord, what should I do? Wishing that God was some sort of drill sergeant who would bark orders at us every day. But God says rather, um, what should you do? Well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> it's kind of frustrating. God, what should I do? Well, you know, there's a man named Abraham. <laughs> God, what do, you, what do you want me to do in this situation? Well, the, uh, um, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. <laughs> it's fascinating the way God does this. And we protest. We say, well, that's not very powerful. How can a story have authority over us? But isn't it true? All of us, all of our lives are shaped by the stories we believe. The stories we believe unite people and they divide people. Whoever controls the narrative of a particular group is the one who's controlling the group. How did Hitler come to power? He simply controlled the narrative. And there are all different entities in our culture seeking to control the narrative. You know, you have the New York Times, you have Fox News, you have all these different, and in God says, here's an authoritative story. This story resides all over all other stories. We can't discover who we are until we find ourselves in this story. So, I truly believe we will never understand who we are as a church or who we are as a people, who we are as individuals, until we understand who we are in God's story. Now, what do we do, though, when the Bible offends us? Well, I'd like to give us some tips. First of all, I'd say pause and consider the context. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, whom I greatly admire, he talks about um, uh, reading Genesis as a young person and getting very upset with these heroes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their polygamy, and the way they treated women. And he also they saw that there was this, this kind of uh, theme in that culture where uh, the oldest son kind of inherited all the money. And he's like, that doesn't seem right. And he really struggled with this in the book of Genesis until he did further research and he discovered, you know what? If you read through Genesis, what you see is polygamy actually wreaks havoc on the culture. And God continually, while, while the, the father in the story might choose the oldest, God continually chose the younger over the older. 
And what he saw was, well, if I read the text, I actually learned that God is subverting the way culture is moving and the way he is moving through his people. And with that, I will share something with you that uh, I found very helpful, and it's the difference between the words descriptive and prescriptive. So, for example, you all know what it's like to um, have medicine prescribed, all right? The doctor prescribes you do this. Take this medication. Uh, The Bible has prescriptions in it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's a prescription. Do not worship idols. That's prescribed. There is also descriptive parts of the scriptures. Uh, David uh, attacks Goliath the Philistine. Now, David's attacking Goliath uh, with a, a slingshot and then cutting off his head is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. The writer is not saying, uh, God's not saying, well, whenever you encounter a non-believer who's over 6'6", I think you should throw stones at him, kill him, and cut his head off. No, what the writer is doing is describing an event in which God intervened in a situation to save his people. And there might things we can, uh, we can take from that that are prescriptive, but the actual writing and describing is not always prescribing. I hope that would be helpful. Uh, as you continue in the text. Secondly, what do we do when the Bible offends us? Well, consider your cultural blinders. The reality is all of us read the text as Americans in 2019 in a, protect, in a particular context. And I think this is, a, this is helpful. Do this experiment with me. Think of a part of the Bible that offends you. All right? Now, ask yourselves a few questions. One, when was the last time you actually read that particular part of the Bible? I have a friend on Facebook. I went to college with him, and he will respond to me sometimes and say, well, the Apostle Paul said this horrible thing about X, Y, or Z. And um, I've challenged him and said, when, did, when was the last time you actually read the writings of the Apostle Paul? His response uh, was, I read them in college. And I was like, okay, Scott, um, I went to college with you. That was about 30 years ago. Uh, I, read the, I read the play Hamlet in college too. I don't think I've plumbed the depths of Hamlet at this particular time. I'm guessing you haven't plumbed the depths of Romans just yet. <laughs> and so it's important that we recognize this is a, a very rich book that has, comes from a particular time and a particular context, and we are reading it in a particular time and context. And is there anything about our context that is coloring the way we read it too? Are all cultures offended by the passage or concept the way your culture or our culture is offended by it? By what authority should our cultural sensibilities stand over other cultural sensibilities? Just because we in the United States are thinking a certain way doesn't mean the rest of the cultures in the world think it that same way, and how does that jive with what the Scripture is actually saying? Tim Keller writes, if the Bible really is the revelation of God and not the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? Does it really make sense to chuck the whole light of God's word just because it offends one aspect of our cultural sensibilities? Thirdly, I'm almost done. What do we do when the Bible offends us? Remember, it's ultimately not about you. (laughs) 
And I think this is helpful. So uh, uh, two of Jesus' disciples are walking down the road on a Sunday morning. Uh, Jesus had been crucified on Friday. As they are walking toward Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus ends up walking next to them. And as they are talking, he asks them why they're so grieved, and they basically respond, you know, are are you the only one visiting Jerusalem uh, who did not know about all the things that have happened these days? And Jesus responds to their grief. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer suffer these things and then enter his glory. And then the writer of Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus is saying is, brothers, just so you know, it's all about me. Now, there, I would argue there are essentially two ways we can read the scriptures. One, we could say, well, you can read it as if it's all about you and you can slice it and dice it according to what you hope should be true for you. Or you can read every part of the Bible as if it's all about Jesus, and that's our topic next week. Um, You can read it as if it's all about Jesus, his kingdom come, his will be done, and how we might come under his loving rule and reign, how we might bring ourselves under his lordship. So here's my challenge to all of us today. Pretty simple. Read it. (laughs) Please read it. (laughs) Just read it. You know, most people complain about the Bible, but they really never read it. A lot of Christians say they cherish it, but they don't really read it. Some people reject it without ever reading it. So my task that I'd like to put before you is, how are you going to read it? Now, we've created some avenues in 2019 for you to begin a journey and growing in God's Word. One of them is Alpha. Uh, Alpha happens on Wednesday nights. Alpha is a great place to begin the journey of coming to know uh, what the Bible's all about, who Jesus is. Um, I encourage you to drop in uh, this, this Wednesday at 6 o'clock. Also, uh, we have something we started called Discovery Bible Experience. We have our small groups doing Discovery Bible Experience. We have Wednesday nights. We had over 50 people in here uh, being trained in Discovery Bible Experience. You come to that on Wednesday. If you want to go on a, on a different, come more comprehensive route, you can be a part of Community Bible Study, which just started. It's here on Monday nights at 7 p.m., Our women's ministry is doing a great uh, study of uh, what God's word says about God's love. Just read it. That's our task. Uh, Let's stop there. We'll do some Q&A. I'm going to 